The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And now if you'll open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesian Church, chapter 6. Our study for several weeks has been Christian warfare. And to me, this seemed to be a very, just a logical and much needed subject in view of what's happened to us this year and and how our status quo Christian lives has been upended. Now, although the world and the government have little to no control over the cause of disease, yet the response of government to a worldwide pandemic can certainly be devastating to the temporal welfare of God's people. Now, I don't believe that Satan causes diseases, but I do believe that he can manipulate the results of them. And a good case in point is the inequitable ways that the government has treated churches in this shutdown. Uh, There's even disparity of response depending on where you live in this country. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, my wife and I were in Kentucky and churches had services mostly as they normally would. And there was only token evidence or activities that would make you aware that there was a pandemic. But in our county and in the state of California, you would think that it's churches that cause this raging problem. And we suffer the harshest reprisals if we deny the government shutdown. And this goes on while other public venues are open. Now, because this is a liberal part of the country that thinks very little of God and religion, Satan uses that callous disregard and rejection of God to keep churches shut, and there's little to no public protest. And so we've seen churches in uh, the Bay Area that have been heavily fined for holding services. And this government action of fining churches is potentially devastating to the survivability of many of them. Well, while we know that God is sovereign in every area, we also know there is not a single congregation that has been promised perpetuity. Now, I hope you understand perpetuity. The Bible promises there will always be true churches in the world until Christ returns. But it doesn't guarantee that there is one particular church that will always exist. And we can see that by looking in the scriptures and understanding that none of the churches that were extant in the first century still exist today. Churches can fail. And God may permit their failure for many reasons. Now we notice in... Romans chapter 1, that people can become so sinful that God gives them up to a reprobate mind. In other words, God will stop all gracious influences and he lets them continue just as they are without interference. They can sin as they please. Now, this could indicate that God may remove gospel preaching He may remove gospel preaching churches from an area where people continue to reject the gospel and show hatred towards God and his people. 
Now, it is a glaring fact that the sins of Romans 1 that Paul wrote about or caused him to write that first chapter in Romans are rampant right here in the Bay Area. We see it going on every day. And we might well wonder, how much does God actively restrict the preaching of the gospel because of this rejection? Now, we do know that during the tribulation that God will permit religious lies Scripture says that he will send delusion so that people will not believe the truth. And that is part of God's judgment on the wickedness of sinful people. And then added to this in 1 Timothy, Paul wrote that in the last days, these last days, the ones we're living in now, that people will depart from the truth. Now, in that letter, he's speaking about churches. They will depart from the faith and they'll listen to evil spirits. This is what he writes in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And so added to the unbelief of the secular world is the hypocrisy of the religious world that is of churches, churches that pretend to tell the truth but spread the lies of the devil's doctrine. Now, that would certainly be cause for God to shut down churches. And because we live in an area that hates God and his word, we can very well be caught up in this righteous judgment of God against evil people. Well, what does this, this mean in connection with our subject of Christian warfare? Well, I think it tells us that our battles will be more frequent and more intense. And in turn, that tells us that we must be more vigilant, more watchful of Satan's attacks. And we must be ready to fight. The status quo of Christian life in our area is changing. And we've gone on for many years without much fear of harm to the church when suddenly, without warning, there came a public shutdown and churches were shoved into the least essential category of public activities. And now eight months have gone by without assembly. Well, there's not a person in the United States that would have believed a year ago that this could happen. And I think it's proof of how God can rapidly change the world scene so that something like we see in Revelation, a seven-year tribulation, and the rapid upheaval that's caused by it is not only possible, but even more than reasonable to happen. I mean, how can we think otherwise when we see the sins of Romans 1 paraded in our streets? And who could believe that a major political party in the United States would not reject out of hand calls for socialism and Marxism and many other things that are anti-God. Who would believe that killing a child ready to be delivered would be a part of a party platform. But that's how rapidly things change. Now again, returning to Christian warfare... The anticipation of rapid change and essential readiness is addressed in the way that Paul wrote this sixth chapter. Now, let me show you this beginning with verse number 13. Ephesians 6, verse number 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, 
to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now between verses 14 and 15 and moving into verse number 16, there is a change of waiting for an attack to engaging an attack. Loins girt about with truth. That's that's preparedness. It's the preparation of building your life in truthfulness and sincerity. And if I could emphasize being committed to anti-hypocrisy. The breastplate of righteousness is to have the imputed righteousness of Christ as protection and the imparted righteousness of Christ as the outworking of our sanctification. And then our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's what we might call the script for evangelism. That's the battle plan once we are engaged. Then notice in verses 16 and 17, it says, Above all, taking the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Above all. Now that refers to the last three parts of the armor. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Above all does not mean that these are the most important But that once we have our loins girt, when we have the breastplate on, when we have the feet prepared, then we're ready for the shield, the helmet, and the sword to be taken at a moment's notice. Now let me explain the thought that Paul has here just a little further. A soldier may take his rest. A battle may be ready to start as he hears the rumblings in the distance. And it may be that the battle plan calls for an attack in the early morning. But the night before the battle, the soldier rests. And as he rests, he wears only a part of his armor. He may have on his belt to hold up his garments. And he may wear the breastplate and take his ease. And he may keep his shoes on in anticipation of the fight. So he won't need to worry about getting those on in the morning. But while he's resting, he doesn't hold his shield. He's not wearing his helmet. He doesn't have his sword in his hand. But he grabs those quickly when there is a call to arms. And then the army is told to march. Now what I'm saying is that the Christian soldier is always prepared with truth. And he's always wearing Christ's righteousness. And he's always ready with the gospel of peace. He lives that way constantly in his preparedness. So he's not constantly putting on and taking off those parts. Now, you know, uh, it's been popular for about 200 years for churches to hold revival services. And revival services are intended to stir up God's people. They're, They're to get the complacency out. And oftentimes you'll see revivals that are never considered successful unless there are dozens of people that come to the front of the church rededicating their lives. And I'm telling you that according to these scriptures, getting revived shouldn't be necessary because Christians are to live this way every day. They're to live in preparedness. And if a church needs yearly or semi-yearly revivals, then that is a church that is not living Ephesians chapter 6. 
If they must be stirred up before they'll move, then people have taken too much rest. They're asleep. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying because it is certainly okay that we would have a week of preaching or two weeks of preaching or however long it might be because if there's anything we need, a preacher would tell you we need more preaching. But we're not a stellar church. If every year we are so lax and lazy about living for Christ that, that, and, and fighting this Christian warfare that we need an evangelist to come at regular intervals to get us fired up. I mean, you know the scenario. There are evangelists that are in the business of making the church circuits to stir people up. And that is not a defined role in the New Testament for an evangelist. In fact, I think that would be antithetical to passages such as Ephesians 6. Now, Paul is telling us here that you shouldn't need a wake-up call. You should always be awake and ready to go. Now, if you need somebody to come and jack you up every six months, you're a weak Christian. He says, above all, that means you already have your loins girt. Your, your breastplate is always on. Your shoes are on your feet. And then at the sign of the battle, the shield is ready to be grabbed. The helmet is right there within reach to put on. And the sword is ready to go into the hand. Now, this is what I'm talking about when I say the Christian must be ready for rapid change. Now, what's happened to us this year shouldn't leave us bum-fuzzled and confused about what we should do. The scriptures are clear about that. We are to stand. That's what the text says. We shouldn't be knocked down by this turmoil. We stand on a firm foundation. Well, we are discussing the pieces of armor that Paul says that a Christian must wear. And our subject today is the shield of faith. I've explained that the armor is Christian virtues and graces that are supplied by God. God is gracious to provide a way of protection, a way to successfully navigate all the pitfalls of the Christian life. Now, the shield of faith is another critical part of this armor. In fact, we can see how critical it is in verse number 16, where it says that with it, we are able to quench All the fiery darts of the wicked. That's what this shield does. And I would say that is substantial because the shield takes away the devil's firepower and ability to hurt us. We must take the shield of faith. Well, this is, of course, valuable information for a soldier. He needs to know this. But first, I think that we need to understand what does the apostle mean by faith? What faith is this? Well, God is gracious. Grace is God reaching out to me. Grace is when God sees a vile, unworthy sinner such as I am, and he determines to shower his affections on me, and then to work out all things necessary that that I might glorify him. Well, faith is the response when I realize what God did for me. Faith is given by God in the sense that he enables me to trust him. I can't trust him with a heart that's wicked and spiritually dead. And because of that, faith could never originate in me. No, faith happens when when God opens the eyes of blinded sinners, when he illuminates the mind to the understanding of the incomprehensible, and when he regenerates a dead sinner. It happens when God 
makes the sinner spiritually alive. And then and only then can we voluntarily exercise faith in him. But this kind of faith, that is not the kind of faith that Paul means when he says the shield of faith. I mean, it's assumed before uh, we could ever be in spiritual warfare, before it's even possible that Christians would have that kind of faith. That's what we just mentioned, a saving faith. That's what that would refer to. And you can't be a Christian without saving faith. And so Paul would never encourage uh, encourage us to take up the shield of saving faith. I mean, you've already got that. You always have it. You will have it your entire Christian life. So a child of God is never without saving faith. When we discuss the girdle of truth, we talked about faith. And in that context, faith was all the doctrines of God's word. Faith typified in the girdle is what we believe about justification and sanctification, redemption, baptism, the church, and and just a multitude of doctrines that are contained in God's word. That is the faith, or as Jude would put it, he says we are to contend for the faith. But here in Ephesians 6.16, Paul is not speaking of faith in that sense either. He's not talking about saving faith. He's not talking about the beliefs of Christianity. But he is speaking of the everyday ability to trust God. The resolve to trust God in all circumstances. It's to see an enemy that's bigger than me. Bigger than my abilities. Far beyond mine. And then to say, I am not afraid Because God is bigger still. God is sovereign. And there's nothing that happens without God's divine permission. This is the trust that says, God holds me up. I trust the commitment that I've made to him that he will keep it until the end. This is the belief that although the government and their powers are bigger than me, and the millions of people that stand against God are more powerful than me, the single believer, yet I also understand that God controls every step they take and every response that I make. This is the belief that there is nothing impossible with God. So I can trust Him, even when I see no way out of my troubles. I know that I can't help myself, and so I trust God to do it. Now our text says, above all, taking the shield of faith, And this means in addition to, in addition to what you've already put on, take the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Now, above all, once again, that does not mean that these are the most important, but they certainly are critically important. These are in addition to. And yet without them, the other pieces of the armor won't help you. Well, the shield of faith in Paul's mind is the defense that stops all the fiery darts of Satan. Now, as he's thinking about this and writing, there is a physical counterpart to it. There was a type of shield used by the Roman soldier, and Paul used it as an example of the kind of faith that will keep us from fearing anything that Satan can do. Now, in Paul's day, a Roman soldier carried two types of shields. 
One was a smaller, lighter shield that would fit over the arm, over the forearm. This was a shield that was used to deflect the blows of a, of a sword, or it could be used to swing at the enemy in hand-to-hand combat. Well, the word for that kind of shield is not the word that Paul used here. The other shield was one that was used by those who were the first line of defense. This was a shield that was large enough that the soldier could hide his entire body behind. Now, when a commander put his men into the field, he would line up soldiers with these shields. They would be up front. They would have these large shields, and they would form a line sometimes a mile long. And they would kneel behind these shields completely covered and prepare for a barrage of arrows that would come uh, hurtling at them. When Spurgeon described this, he used the analogy of a door. He said the shield of faith has the connotation of hiding behind a door. And that's why he said the shield of faith is the defense for our defense. And so the soldiers on the first line of defense carried this large shield that was about four feet high and two and a half feet wide, and he would crouch behind it so that nothing could touch his body. And he would peek out around this this shield and shoot at times. But mostly this is this long line of shields that would slowly advance upon the enemy, and the enemy's arrows could not penetrate that line. Now, this gives a sense of how vital this kind of faith is. Our unwavering faith of God, that is our first line of defense against Satan's attacks. Now, I've given you a long introduction to this subject. It doesn't really leave much time for explaining this faith in detail, but we're going to give it a stab and uh, carry most of it over to another week. This living, abiding faith is in The God who never fails. He knocks down every weapon used against us. Now let me explain first. Number The first thing, this will be on your listening sheet. The focus of faith. The focus of faith. Now everyone understands something about faith. And yet because faith is intangible, most don't understand it well. Oh, it's common to hear people encourage others by telling them they need more faith. Whether they understand biblical faith is another matter, yet everyone has faith in something. Nobody lives without faith. I don't want to venture into this today, but atheists and evolutionists also live by faith. In fact, when you speak of the impossible... Their faith is so wild and so much into impossibilities and improbabilities that it supersedes a Christian's faith in God. And I don't mean that that their faith is more valuable than a Christian faith, but it, it's, it takes more faith to believe that there's nothing that is a cause than to believe that God is the cause. That takes an impossible kind of faith. Christians have faith in God who is the cause. Well, the truth is, of course, you can't function in this world without faith. When you do something as simple as setting your alarm clock in the morning to get up, uh, you put your faith in a mechanical instrument that at the set time, the time that you set, that alarm will go off. Uh, last last month, my, my wife and I went to Kentucky and we had an early morning flight. I'm always afraid of 
missing those flights. And so sometimes I don't even go to bed for fear that I might miss the alarm. Oh, we stayed awake. And then Lino came and picked us up at 2.30 a.m. to take us to the airport. And I was afraid he wouldn't be awake because I sure was. I couldn't live that way every day, though. I mean, I can't stay up all night every night because I'm afraid that I'm going to miss morning appointments. No, I set the alarm clock, I trust it, and I don't bother to wake up every hour to see if the clock is, uh, if I've missed something. Now, we understand that faith is necessary even in the simple affairs of life. And if faith is essential in the smallest things, then think how the importance multiplies when we depend on it in the biggest affairs of life. And of course, the biggest affair of life is life itself. We have an eternal soul. And there's none of us that has the ability to see one moment into our future. We need faith for our comfort. If there's anything that we want to be sure about, we want to be sure where our soul will spend eternity. And I'm not willing to trust my soul to the blind hope that everything's going to turn out right. But as I said, all people have faith in something, and that's often the source of confusion. When it comes to the eternal soul, the question is, where do you place your faith? Well, the focus has to be right. Another way to to say that is the object of faith must be right. Now, we'll notice first then that faith in faith is hopeless. Now, many times when people are in trouble, they'll get advice that says, come on, man, you just got to have faith. You got to keep up the faith. You got to have faith, bro. Just have more faith. That sounds like wonderful, hopeful advice, but what can faith do? Faith is intangible. It doesn't have any abilities. Faith doesn't do anything. Faith for the sake of faith is not any good at all. Faith is only as good as what your faith is in. And this is the reason we say that it's not faith that saves. Faith by itself means nothing at all. When the Bible says that we're saved by faith... It doesn't mean that faith has any ability to do anything. You can have faith, a faith that's misplaced. You can have faith in a doctor to cure your disease, but your faith is not in the doctor as a human being who wears a white coat. I can wear a white coat, but I promise that my medical advice is not good. You'd be foolish to trust me to take out your appendix. Now, your faith is in a doctor... Because of his training. Your faith in him is to help you because he went to medical school. He appeared before a medical board that approved his training. And you trust that he has the knowledge and the ability to help you. When I go to the doctor's office, I almost always look at the certificate on the wall to see where do you get his training. Now, you'll not fix your appendicitis because you have faith in your faith to be healed. No, it is the object of your faith. And that is the ability of the doctor to help you. Likewise, when it comes to trust for your soul, it's the object of faith that saves. Now, hear hear me well, that your faith in the Bible will not save your soul. You may swear on a stack of Bibles that you believe that you will be saved, but a stack of Bibles and swearing on them, and even that they're true, that won't save you. Now, what Christians believe will save you is recorded in the Bible, but the Bible itself never saved anyone. 
Your faith that the Bible contains an accurate historical account of the heroes of the faith and that it's true when it says that Jesus died and arose from the grave, that mental ascent itself, that those are true facts, will not save you. Now, you've got to believe those, but that's not what saves you. Now, I've already said that Paul is not speaking of saving faith, not not saving faith per se, but we mention it here because the object of saving faith is the same one who helps you fight Satan after you have believed. It's his power that deflects the fiery darts of Satan. It's your implicit trust in him that is the shield of defense. And so if you trust anything else, you're not protected. Now, Satan attempts to get you to trust everything else. And most of the time, what he gets you to do is to trust yourself. Attempts to get you to trust your feelings and your emotions and your opinions. And there are too many Christians that have faith in themselves to make right decisions. They don't ask God because their faith is in them, not God. Well, a question that needs to be asked, how did this saving faith that they have in Jesus Christ shift to a living faith in themselves? Well, that's the devil's work. He's up against a line of soldiers that have their shields lying at their feet instead of up in front of them. They're soldiers that have a different battle plan. They don't think the commander was right when he said, you've got to put up that shield. And I run across this all of the time. Christians who make nonsensical decisions because their faith is not focused where it should be. They look inwardly rather than looking upwardly. The object of faith is what protects you. Now, if you are the object or anything else is the object of faith, and that was never enough to save you in the first place, then what makes you think that it's good enough to protect you from the one that originally blinded you and kept you from trusting Christ. Now our faith is in this unfailing source. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. It is his ability. It is his power that we trust. And so that focus must be right. Faith in the fact that you have faith. That there's no hope in that. So the focus must be on Christ and his ability alone and make sure as you hear that statement that you mentally underline his ability alone, especially the word alone, because God never allows a mixture of faith. Well, this leads me to a second observation about faith's focus. Faith's object is tried and true. In other words, there's a track record for the object of faith. That's the reason we trust him. Now, there is nobody in his right mind that repeats his trust in something that doesn't work. If the alarm clock failed to go off once, then I have no confidence in it, even if it goes off the next ten times. Only one failure is not good enough for me to trust a simple alarm clock. And so why would someone trust their eternal soul to something that might work and it might not? Well, the object of our faith is proved to be trustworthy. So trustworthy that he compares it to that of a mother and her care for her child. In fact, he puts his steadiness and his trustworthiness above the natural care of a mother for her child. In Isaiah 49, verse 13, 
It says, sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and bring forth, break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord hath forsaken me and the Lord hath forgotten me. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, but I will not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Now, this is a promise that gets repeated in Scripture when God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, knowledge of God's track record, that's one of the amazing things about Israel's failure to trust God. I recall our trip to Israel many years ago. On the second day of the trip, we went to Mount Carmel, and that is the site of Elijah's contest with the prophets of Baal. Tour bus took us up the mountain, and when we arrived at the top, it was truly an impressive sight. From the top of that mountain, you could see for miles, and the valley of Jezreel stretched out below. And that's the valley that's so often mentioned in Scripture, where God fights his final battle against Satan before the millennium. This is, that's the place where the armies gather for Armageddon. And I think that's interesting considering our subject of Christian warfare today. But from that vantage point on the top of the mountain, you, you can see off in the distance Mount Tabor, which is the traditional site for the ascension of Jesus. Now, at the ascension, perhaps there were thoughts of warfare. As people saw Jesus go into heaven, and they may have been thinking that, when he returns, there was this information that there would be warfare. And the angel said, this same Jesus that you see going up, he's going to come in like manner as you've seen him go. Now, those are impressive thoughts. And this mountain was a perfect place for God to display his power. Well, it was on Mount Carmel that Elijah issued an invitation, he called the prophet's of Baal to come to a contest between his God and theirs. And I can almost hear, while we're hearing this and looking at the surroundings, I could almost hear the prophet of Jehovah God as he taunted those prophets of Baal. Elijah said, where is your God? Is he sleeping? Is he away on a far journey? Is he too busy listening to someone else? And then Elijah demonstrated a God who listens to his people and is never preoccupied. He is a God whose watchful eye is on his children. And he comes to help when we call on him. Our God always does just what he says. He doesn't forget or forsake his people. Now, Elijah's neck was on the line. He trusted that God was listening. He had no fear God would respond Elijah believed he would come down from that mountain, the victor. And so he called on the Lord his God. And then there was this glorious burning fire that came out of heaven. I remember that our guide described it as lightning that struck the altar. I had a couple of disagreements with our guide over such things about using natural means when he described these types of events. And I don't really have any special insight into that, but I prefer to believe that God used something extraordinary 
Not just lightning that someone might try to explain away. No, I think that God sent massive burning flames and a huge column that came down and consumed the altar. Now, I have a good imagination, but what I can't imagine is that Israel would forget what God did on Mount Carmel. I can't imagine that Israel would forget the many times that God came through for them. I mean, you consider how many times that Israel was reminded of miracles, miracles in the Exodus. I mean, those are frequently repeated in Scripture. It's always They're always used as a reminder that they could trust Jehovah God. It's amazing that Israel forgot so much and needed to be reminded. Well, then I imagine that it's not too hard to imagine because we do the same thing. When did God fail you? Do you have a record of God's many time that God failed you? Do you have a date for that? Did you record that somewhere that God failed you? Have you doubted God at any time since you believe? Well, I don't doubt that you have. But never did God fail Israel. And that record, that record of God always coming through should have been enough To trust him every time. God is tried and true. What do we trust God for? Why why do we trust him? Well, we trust the evidence, don't we? We would trust what he's done. He never asks us for blind faith. God never says, oh, well, I failed you once, but I won't do it again. No, we have no record of God's failures. That record is blank. There's never a single incident of his failure in the Bible. And here's here's something about the Bible. It's never shy about recording the failures of even the greatest heroes of the faith. We find it in the life of Abraham. We find the life of David. We find in the lives of many of those we just read in Hebrews chapter 11. God still mentions their failures. But when we come to God and it talks about his faithfulness, there is never a record of failure. And God always gives accurate accounts. And there is none, none recorded about him because there are none. So who do we trust? You know, that's the key to this whole thing. Who do we trust? We trust the God who made heaven and earth. What reason is there for him to fail? He's more powerful than anything that exists. He overrules everything. So there's no one that can force failure on him. And then he'll never renege on a promise because to be God, he must always be truthful. The universe falls apart without faithfulness to every word that God promised. And so when you as a Christian are faced with impossible situations, know that God is always able. Elijah's faith was not without evidence of God's power. He knew that power. And so he could build his altar. And then he could take and pour 12 barrels of water on top of his sacrifice. And then he could taunt the prophets of Baal. Because he had no fear when he called on God's name. And that, folks, is the kind of fear, or rather of of faith, that acts as a shield. This is the faith that Paul speaks of. This is faith that is unshakable confidence in God. There's no reason to fear the fiery darts of the wicked because you can get behind this shield of faith. You can hide behind the door and the fiery darts can't penetrate. 
Now I love this song that we hardly sing anymore. It says, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my soul in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand. Oh, when the Bible says that we are covered in God's hands by faith, that is a promise that we are secure. There's no reason to fear because he is tried and true. And so when you focus your faith in him, the object is right. Satan has no dart. He has no weapon that's too powerful for almighty God. Focus on the God of your faith. There is plenty of evidence for his power. It's power he'll use for you just as he did for Israel. Now, if I might return to the beginning of the message, what the government does to churches is only because the Lord allows it to be done. We can't peel back the curtain of God's secret will to see the reason that God does what he does, why he allows it. And I don't really need to do that because whatever God's reason, he's never relinquished control. His sovereign will will be done. Now listen again. God expects you to be ready. He expects you to be committed and to be faithful and never, never to need a jump start from an evangelist to be powered up, rededicated and revived. Now we're to be ready with the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. And you know why? It's because today may be the day that God calls on you to fight. It's always his day to respond when by faith you call on him. Faith is that shield when Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. And so today I would call upon you to place your faith in this one who never fails. If you haven't trusted Christ to save you, you don't have a shield. You don't have any protection. You will fall. And in the end, you'll not be saved. Not until you resist all confidence in yourself and place all of your confidence in Jesus Christ. I encourage you, trust him today. And he promises to be your shield for all of your tomorrows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you thanking you for the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. The tried, the trusted, the true, the one who has never failed. We can have complete confidence that we will conquer, we will overcome. Who is he that overcomes but the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the God that we need to trust? Lord, we pray that you would bless your people. Faith can be weakened by the things that go on around us. We can let our faith be weakened when we don't keep our eyes on you. And you're not always that object of faith that's standing out in front of us all the time, leading us wherever we go. We sang earlier today, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care, and surely we do. All the fiery darts of Satan that whiz around us, all the... Demons that are around us every day, we need protection. 
And Lord, you promised to be that protection. And we thank you for it. We ask that your people would trust you. As always, we pray that you'll continue to hold our church together as we uh, can't assemble. And we pray, Lord, that you would change things. For whatever reasons that you let this go on as it has, we trust you that you're right. We know that you will do the right thing. And Lord, there will be some good that comes out of this because you promised that for us. Lord, be with our people. Bless them. Help them. Help us to be encouraged in, in all that we do as we try to serve you every day. Thank you for these things, Lord. We pray for those that are lost, that have never placed their saving faith in you. Can't talk about living faith and shields of faith without saving faith. So we pray, Lord, they will repent of their sins, trust you to save you, save them from their sins. Thank you, Lord, for these things. Bless us. Give us another good week until we return to hear the word of God again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now I'd like to give you a final benediction from the book of Psalms, chapter 33. And uh, this is about trust in God. Psalm 33 and verse number 13. This is the God that we serve, the one who made heaven and earth. The Lord looketh from heaven. He beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. Mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord, and he is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us, according as we hope in thee. I pray that your hope is in God and only him. Hope to see you next time. Stay safe and live the way the Lord wants you to live this week. And we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.